All right. Well, hey, good morning. So I appreciate Mary. Mary does a lot of behind-the-scenes work for us, does a good job caring for people. But if you've been following along with these announcement videos past couple months, we had Kristen Cuthbert, who um, was pregnant, and then she went on leave. And then we had Tracy Walda, who was pregnant, and now she's on leave. And so Mary and John Bach, I mean, <laughs> they better be careful. Now, um, if this is your first Sunday with us today, we, we are glad that you're here. It is, it is a parenting series that you're jumping in the middle of. Um, but as I said, the past few weeks, I think the content we're going to cover will be helpful and hopeful for, for anybody. In fact, we're going to look at four questions that affect us all. But the reality is, is that, that parenting, it's, it's difficult in this hectic world. And so we're taking time to talk about some of the things that we're wrestling with. But before we start the conversation, there's an important question I've got to ask. Any Chick-fil-A fans this morning? A few? Okay. All right. Now, um, I'm breaking one of the rules when it comes to being a pastor, which is you don't talk about Chick-fil-A on a Sunday. Because if you do appreciate Chick-fil-A, you know that they are closed on Sundays. And so you're not supposed to, like, download that information, and then you think about it for 35 minutes and show up and find out that you're not getting Chick-fil-A today. So if you're thinking about it, it's Monday. Yeah, you've been warned. But I appreciate Chick-fil-A for the sauce. I like the Chick-fil-A sauce. In fact, uh, if you were to come to our home, you would discover that we often ask for more Chick-fil-A sauce than we need just so that we have extras to keep in our refrigerator because the sauce, well, it makes a difference. Some of you are foodies. Some of you like to cook, and you have a secret sauce, perhaps a recipe that is a family tradition that you know you're waiting at some point, like you're going to get all of the key ingredients, but you haven't really arrived at that point yet, and, and it might be that sauce that makes or breaks that dish. But here's the deal. When it comes to parenting, unfortunately, there's no secret sauce. There is no secret sauce to parenting. And... If, it, if there is one, you wouldn't find it in the Bible. Like, let's just talk about, like, the first parents, okay? Adam and Eve. Well, with the first parents, first children, first homicide, okay? Now, fast forward in the story, you know, King David and his son, they don't get along, and you get a civil war, and thousands of people die. And so you got Mary and Joseph, right? I mean, Jesus, he turned out okay, so clearly they knew what they were doing. Well, Jesus, young age, go to the temple. Where's Jesus? Can't find him. You lost the savior of the world. Congratulations. I mean, how does, how does that conversation go? Hey, God, about Jesus, um, don't know where he is. But the fact is, is that if you were to go through the Old Testament and New Testament, there's just not this one-size-fits-all approach to raising up the next generation that we can say, well, just do this and everything will be okay. And to make it even more difficult, we talked about in week one, is that there's this enemy, this adversary that's trying to deceive us and lead us astray. And so our response is, is discernment, is to grow in awareness and understanding and to come up with a response. Now, one of the lies that many people, especially um, if you've grown up in the church or been a part of the church for quite some time, there's a common myth that just because that godly homes... Uh, produce godly kids, and that just because you raise up your kids in the church, that automatically, yes, they're going to follow Jesus as well. And this common misconception comes from a uh, misunderstanding of Proverbs 22. And here's, here's, here's what it says. To start children off on the way they should go, and even when they are old, 
they will not turn from it. And so some people take this to, hey, as long as I do all of the right things, it's like a formula. If I do X, Y, and Z, this is the response that I'm going to get. It's like a boomerang. Raise them up in the church, send them out, they'll come back to the church. But here's what you need to understand. When it comes to the book of Proverbs, it's called the book of Proverbs, not the book of promises. The book of Proverbs is filled with God-sized, God-breathed observations about life and its wisdom and its truth. But these are not one-size-fits-all approaches. They are not guarantees. And so really, this is a warning, not a promise. Now, one of the dangers that comes with this believing this thought that godly homes produce godly kids is that if somehow, um, by God's grace, you raise up your child to, to follow after Jesus, um, you are prone to taking credit for it when really it's by God's grace that they've made this decision. But on the flip side, another danger is you're filled with guilt or remorse. Like, what did I do wrong? Am I being punished? But probably the, the biggest impact of this lie is how it affects people at home and students and children. And the fear of disappointing mom and dad because they're convinced that they're doing all of the right things and so you're going to follow in their footsteps. And so the pressure is, I can't be honest about my doubts. I, I can't be honest about my fears. Hey, mom and dad, this might be good for you, but I'm not really resonating with it. And so that conversation never takes place and so there's not healthy dialogue about some of the skepticism that maybe is at home when it comes to following after Jesus. See, this verse actually reads something like this. Train up a child in his own way, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. So the, the bad news is, there's no guarantee. The good news is, is that years ago, Moses provided a set of sermons that provides a framework around the importance of passing on faith to the next generation. And so out of Deuteronomy 6, we're also going to look at four questions in response to these commands, these instructions that Moses once commanded. So that's where we're going today. So if you have your Bible, you can open up to Deuteronomy 6. We're going to look at verses 4 through 9. Now here's what's happening. Here's the context. Moses is leading a new generation of Israelites into the promised land. Here's the problem. These are not the Israelites that got to experience the parting of the Red Sea. These are not the Israelites that got to experience the communication of God's law at Mount Sinai. And so Moses says, here's what you need to understand. God's law matters, and he is powerful. And so through these set of sermons, he begins to unpack something that's super helpful for even us today when it comes to passing on faith or helping people understand what it means to follow God. Here's what he says. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, some would say that this piece of Scripture is one of the most important pieces in all of the Bible. And if you were to head into a Jewish synagogue today, you would find them practicing this call and response. They would call out verses 4 through 5. It's known as the Shema. And it means to hear, listen, and obey. And the response would come out of Psalm 72. Now, what Moses is trying to help 
his audience understand is that in the context, you know, the Egyptians, they worshiped gods or goddesses. But as we see in Exodus 20, there's one true God. And so he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. This is one that we quote. This is one that maybe you've heard before. This is one that we sing. But these three pieces, heart, soul, and strength, in the Hebrew, incredibly difficult to translate. To the Hebrews, heart and mind were connected. It's where you get decision-making power. It's what your gut instinct, like what should I do in life? The soul, the essence of who you are, but strength, strength is even more difficult to understand. Uh, you know, maybe equivalent for those of you that, that watch college football, maybe you saw this this past season, the Big 12 championship. There was this quarterback uh, leading his team for DCU, and they were up against Kansas. And in the, in the final moments of the game, he, ESPN zooms in on him, and he just looks physically exhausted, beaten, battered, like he had left everything he possibly had out on the field. Like he had no more strength left to offer. This is what Moses is saying when it comes to the way that we should love God with all of who we are. Now here's what's interesting. Jesus shows up and he adds the word mind. In a conversation in which people were trying to trap him, what's the greatest commandment? Out of all of them, which is the one? And he says, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What's with the addition? Well, Moses is talking to Hebrews. Heart and mind are connected to Hebrews. But to the Greeks, they were separate. And so Jesus is saying, hey, I'm not saying anything different than Moses. I'm just trying to understand that this is all of who you are, not some of who you are. Love God that way. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts and press them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. This is one of the first pushes that we see in the ancient world for in-home theological education. In other words, it was now being commanded that parents would come along and help their children know about the law of God. That parents would now come alongside the next generation and they would be responsible for teaching them God's word. Here's the challenge. This is a revolutionary point in history because less than 100 years before the Exodus, we have the arrival of the alphabet. And up until this point in time, only scribes were ones that understood language. And because they wanted to be seen as elite or set apart, they made language even more difficult to understand. And so now you have the arrival of the alphabet, and common people all of a sudden can read and write and communicate. And so now you have God's instruction coming into the home. And until biblical Israel, no society had functioned this way. It's a big deal. So Moses says, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large, here's the common theme here, flourishing cities that you did not build, 
Houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide. Wells you did not dig. And vineyards and olive groves, well, you did not plant. Then, when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. We, we don't always assume that everybody here on any given Sunday are all in when it comes to following after Jesus. We aspire to be the type of church that you could show up and say, I don't know if I believe this. I've got questions, and you would feel like this is a safe place. And yet, for those of us that would say, yes, I've transferred my allegiance to King Jesus, here's my question for us. How would your life look different if you made it a priority to just do this, this week. To be careful that you do not forget the Lord. Like when you wake up in the morning, first thing, here's point of conviction. Temptation, my phone, right by my bed. Well, let's get up, caught up on news. Let's get caught up on some emails. First thing in the morning that you would not forget about the Lord. That as you're getting ready for the day and you're playing the movie forward, here's all the things that are going to take place in my day that you would not forget about the Lord. That as you're going through the chaos of trying to get the kids together, students together, and get everybody out the door, that you would not forget about the Lord. As you're thinking about what's going to happen at lunch and the conversations that you're going to have along the day, that you would not forget about the Lord. That as you think about those that have been placed under your care to care for them, that you would not forget about the Lord. That as you show up to work, that as you show up to school, as you show up to extracurricular activities, that you show up in traffic, that as you show up in the grocery store, that as you show up in the community, that you would not forget about the Lord. That when you sit down at the end of the day to have a meal, you would not forget about the Lord. And at the end of the day, when you're tired, you're exhausted, you're fatigued, and you just want to Netflix, or whatever it is that you do to zone out, that you would not forget the Lord. That's what Moses is saying. And you can imagine the impact in your life, in my life, our life, the community, the country, the world, if we would simply take these instructions seriously. Now, there's four questions that speak to the commands that Moses wrote about, the instructions. And these are questions that affect us all. But they're questions that we need to consider. So if you're in a position where God has raised you up and you're coming alongside other people, whether it's discipleship or you're a teacher in school or a coach or a parent or a student coming alongside other students, these are questions that we're all wrestling with and that we need to be prepared to respond to. Here's the first. Who's in charge? Who's in charge? I mean, from a very early age, when you come out of the womb, you ask this question, ah, screaming, chaos. Who's in charge because I'm hungry? Feed me. And guess what? We never stop asking this question. When you experience conflict in relationships, like who's at fault here? Who's in charge anyway? Whose decision was this? Who made this decision? Who can I hold accountable? Who's in charge? And when we place people under the care of others, we ask the question, who's in charge? We never stop asking this question. And so when it comes to having a relationship with Jesus, one of the first things I say is, hey, where are you at with the resurrection? 
Because I could say God's in charge. But my question to you is, do you believe that? And if you don't, how do you reconcile someone that was dead and is now alive? Paul says it this way, if Christ is not risen from the dead, then why bother? Why show up? Why have a worship service? Why do any of this if he's not risen? But if he is risen, then he is who he said he was, and that becomes an authority. He may not be your authority, but he is the authority. And if he's the authority, he now gives you your identity. You're defined by his activity, not your own. And now your life is shaped around his commands. And so if you would say, he's your authority, here's our response. We teach authority, but here's the key. We model submission. This isn't even just a Bible concept. Like for those of you in the the workplace, the marketplace, you understand this. Because when you onboard new employees or new employees come into your business or organization, chances are the person doing the onboarding not only teaches who's in charge, but models what it looks like to come under that authority. For those of you in sports, extracurricular activities, when you appoint a captain, you're saying, hey, follow them. They're on board. Do what they do. It's not just an intellectual concept. Like, they're submitting to it, and it's changing their life. And so it goes for us who get to influence other people when it comes to asking them to follow Jesus. We want to teach authority, but we also want to model submission. Pastor Trey was up here earlier talking about this rhythm that we have as a church, the catechism, and each week we have a question, and there's a response, and then we have a conversation at home. This has been very hard for me personally because I've been called out by my own kids. Like, there's the Ten Commandments that we walk through. And so I'm hovering on the one which is great when you're a parent, which is the whole honor your parents. But they were astute enough to point out, yeah, but what about the Sabbath, Dad? Because it also says that. Like, where's the rhythm of rest in our world? Like, where's that time where we set apart to intentionally not forget about the Lord? Like, it's one thing for me as a parent to say, follow me, I'm in charge. It's another thing to model it and say, even I submit to the Lord and his authority. But this first question is connected to this other important question, which is this, who loves me? Because from a young age, not only are we asking who's in charge, we're also asking this question of who loves me? Because you and I know that those that we respond to when it comes to the authority in their life, that there's a direct correlation to how they care for you as a person. Like some of the people that you've enjoyed working for in life, supervisors, managers, that they weren't just an authority in your life, but they cared for you personally. Like coaches, teachers in the community, yes, they're in charge, but they care for you. They show up in those hard moments, which is why Moses reminds them in chapter seven, he says, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. He goes on to say, Dumb day. Here we go. 
that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of the Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, and don't miss this, is the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Jesus shows up and says, if you love me, you'll do what? You will keep my commands. And he modeled that himself. He is faithful 100% of the time, always seeing his promises through. But we all love differently. Some of you love through time. Some of you are good where you just show up and you're present. Like, here I am. I'm looking you eye to eye, and we're going to talk and have a conversation, and it's going to be meaningful, and we're going to connect. Some people love through acts of service. Like, how can I help? I want to fix your engine. I want to help fix your fence. If there's anything I can do, let me land a hand. I want to serve you in this way because I love you. Some people do that through affirmation. How did it feel when you got that done? I've been rooting for you. I've been praying for you. I'm, I'm so glad that this has taken place in your life. They're affirming you. For others, it's, it's gifts and generosity. Because I love you, I've, I've thought about you in this creative way, and I want you to experience love in this way. For others, it's touch, it's the high five, it's the fist bump, it's the hug. I love you. But here's the challenge. It's easy to love people when they've done things for you. It's harder to love people when they've hurt you, betrayed you, committed wrongs against you. Suddenly it's not so easy to do those things. And yet Jesus shows up and does exactly that for us. That on the cross, he takes on the wrath of God, taking on the penalty for our sin, past, present, and future, all in the name of love so that we could know him and be known by him. So our response is, we teach adoration, praise God for what he's done, but we model sacrifice. If you're, if you're here today and you're still trying to figure out where you're at with God, here's what I know to be true about you, because it's also true about me, that we all want to be known, understood, and loved. But let me add a couple words, fully known and fully understood. We live in a time where we put stuff up about our personal lives for the world to see. Like we post things like this is who I am. This is what matters to me. Like this happened to our family. But people can know a lot about you and not know you. And beyond knowing you, there's another layer of intimacy, which is to understand why you are the way that you are. And then to have someone know all of your hurts, your habits, your hangups, your fears, your insecurities, your deepest, darkest secrets, and still love you, that's profound. You see, since Genesis 3, humanity has been trying to work back to this place where we experience what it means to be fully known, fully understood, and fully loved. And God is the only one that can provide that for us. That he can step into all of who we are and still say, I love you. 
And so if we have the, the privilege of leading people towards faith, it starts with sharing a love that will never perish, spoil, or fade, which is connected to this third question. Is this real? Because let's be honest, and I was 18, and this was the question I had. I mean, come on, really? There's this great creator of the universe that knows everything, that if like the sun was a smidge to the left or the sun was a smidge to the right, we would all cease to exist. And somehow he came to earth and walked amongst humanity, and that person went to a cross, and he was killed and was buried and rose again. Okay, that's an authority, and he loves me, but is this real? Is this true? Because I watch a lot of movies, I've read a lot of stories, and I'm not sure I can buy it. When our youngest was, I think, I think she was three when the whole B thing happened, right? Three, four. This is the part where you validate my response. This is the interactive moment. See, pray for our marriage. We, uh, we have communication issues this morning. I think she was three. I'm going to go with three, and you can correct me on the way home today. It'll be great. So Rose wakes up in the middle of the night, and she's screaming as if, like, someone had attacked her. And so we're trying to discern, like, what happened to her, thinking, is this, like, a bug bite or something? Because she's just distraught, and she won't go back to sleep. And what we took some time to figure out is that she had a dream that she was stung by a bee. And it was so real to her, to the point where she was just exhausted. She'd close her eyes and open them again because she was so afraid. And so it took a lot of hours and sleepless nights to get her to this place of helping her see what was real and what was not. And so it is when it comes to passing on faith. How do I discern? Is this true? Is this valid? Is this meaningful? Should I bet my life on it? And one of the ways that we do that is through testimony. Moses said it this way. Hey, in the future, when your son asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws the Lord our God has commanded you, tell him. And he goes on to give him specifics. Tell him about the time that God showed up in your life. The psalmist says, let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story for a reason. Because it's one thing to say intellectually, I believe that he died on the cross for my sins. It's another thing to say time and time again, I experienced God showing up in my life and doing things that made no sense to no one but the power of God. And the more that we tell those stories of how God has been at work in our life, suddenly it's like, well, maybe there is something to this Jesus. Maybe there is something. Maybe I should lean in and figure out some things when it comes to this risen God. Do you remember in the 80s, Hair Club for Men? Do you remember their slogan? I'm not only the president, I'm also a client. I'm not, also, I'm not just in charge of this company, but I've benefited from it personally. I'm just not an ambassador for Jesus, carrying the official positions of heaven wherever I go. I've also been changed by his grace and his truth and his mercy. Yes, I believe that he's my advocate and he'll stand before me in the day of judgment and my sin, my past, present, and future, but I also believe that he's at work each and every day of my life. And so we teach absolutes, but we model sanctification. And there's a big fancy church word, right? Sanctification. What does that even mean? Well, to be sanctified, to be holy, to be set apart. Well, there's three things 
There's sanctification in the past. There's sanctification in the present. And there's sanctification in the future. In the past, the moment that you place your faith in Jesus, you stand justified before God. And positionally, you get to be right before God because God now sees you the same way that he sees his son clothed in righteousness. So that's in the past, like in the moment we place our faith in him. But when we follow him, we're now free from the power of sin in our life, becoming holy and becoming more and more like Jesus, set apart because we're free from that power of sin in our life. There's this maturing process, this sanctifying process, but in the future, it gets really good because we experience glorification. We're free from the presence of sin for all eternity, holy because sin is no more. And so this is what we experience day in and day out. But here's the challenge. More and more students walk away from the faith because parents weren't equipped to come alongside their children and students when they had the hard questions. When they were asking this question right here, what happens if? Like what, what if I don't believe what you believe? And what if I leave home and I just decide, hey, thanks, Mom and Dad, that's for you, but it's not for me. I'm just going to, like, I'm a good person, and I love you, and I'm going to be kind, and you've, you've modeled a lot of things for me, but I'm just not a follower of, of Jesus. So what now? W what does that mean for me? What does it mean when I'm going through things in, in, in school? And I've got big questions. Is, is, is at home a place for me to have those questions? Or should I just bury those questions. When I was in fifth grade, my stepdad made it very clear to me that I was not to go inside his workshop. He locked it up and said, do not come in here because it's not safe. And so what did I want to do? I was asking the question, well, what happens if I want to go inside? And so I found the key and I opened up and I went inside. And for a few minutes, I thought to myself, what's the big deal? Hey, there's not anything happening here. And I sat down in a comfortable spot. All right. Took the key back, locked it up. A few minutes later, my skin was on fire. Turns out laying in insulation, not a good thing. <laughs> oh, so that's what you meant by it's not safe. One pastor I respect says that when it comes to leading people to faith, instead of bailing them out, let them fail their way out. Because it's in those moments where we get to wrestle through this. Teaching accountability, but modeling saving grace. I heard someone say that your understanding of grace is probably reflected in the way that you extend grace to other people. And so if grace to you is like a vending machine. Like you, you, you've earned the, the money in your pocket. You've got the, the eight quarters for the bag of Cheetos, A17 in the hospital as you're waiting for someone. Like there it is. Like there's grace. I need this in my life right now. And I've worked hard. Boom, here it is. Now I feel good. If that's grace to you, then in those moments where you are led to possibly extend grace to someone else, your gravitational pull is to say, what have you done for me? Like maybe you need to go do some work first 
clean things up, and then I'll extend grace. But if grace is a gift that you've received that you do not earn and you did not deserve, then you have a posture of humility like, how did this happen? Like, why me? Why do I get to experience this? One way of thinking about it is imagine five or six people that you would want at your table. Influential people. Like if it could be anybody. Like these are the five or six names that I would love to have a meal with or a cup of coffee with. Pick their brain and explore. Ask questions. Who would it be? Think about that. And if it happened, you'd be sitting at the table saying, whoa, what an honor and a privilege. Like, whoa, how did this, why do I get to be in this company? But when we receive grace, Jesus says, come and sit at my table. And he serves us, even to the point of washing our feet. But as we leave the meal, Jesus throws his life on the thing that can harm us the most. Like the hand grenade of sin that can destroy you and lead to death. Jesus throws his body on top of it and his body is ripped to shreds so that we could experience grace and have a relationship with him. You see, Moses did what prophets do. He pointed to Jesus. Deuteronomy 18, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. But Jesus isn't just another prophet. There's other worldviews that would say, yes, Jesus is a prophet. But what sets Jesus apart is that he wasn't pointing to some other way of salvation. He shows up and says, I am salvation. Yes, Moses rescued people from slavery. Jesus rescues people from death through this balance of accountability and saving grace. So this week, how would you answer these questions? Regardless of where you're at with God, maybe on the way home today, at lunch, how would you respond to who's in charge? How would you answer this question, who loves me? How would you walk through someone that's skeptical? Is this real? And are you prepared to answer the question, what happens if? These are big questions. And as I've said the past few weeks, I don't feel like I'm the right person to teach people on parenting when it comes to discipline. And I've got three kids under the age of 10. I'm still trying to figure this out. And most days I'm just trying to throw stuff on the walls to see what sticks. And yet as a pastor, I care deeply about the next generation following Jesus. And God says, I get to be a part of your life in that way. And so this morning, I want you to hear that it's not just on me as a pastor to pass on faith to the next generation, or Chad, or Trey, or Wendell, or Alex, our student coordinator, or Tracy, in Austin, in our children's ministry. But it's a partnership with you as those that are raising up the next generation. And so as you came in this morning, you were handed a card with the name of a family. And our invitation is that you would pray for this family because we're meant to do this together. That's why God said, I'm going to establish the church 
And this morning, I've asked the band to lead us in a song, which is a prayer, a prayer for the next generation that comes out of Numbers 6. But before we read that, just a few chapters after this, do you know what happens to Moses? He's exhausted. He's tapping out. He's been trying to lead the next generation in faith. And he says to God, just kill me. Like, I'm, I'm done. What else you got? God's response is, go and find 70 elders, and I'm going to impart the power of God upon them, and you're not going to do this on your own. And so the message is, when it comes to passing on the faith to the next generation, we're not going to do it on our own. That it's going to take a village. It's going to take an army. And one of the ways that we do this together is through prayer. And so here's this prayer found in number six. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Let that be a prayer for your family and maybe that family that's on that card that you were given this morning. And not just this week and these next few minutes but in the days ahead, would you partner with us in this way? Would you stay on your feet? We're gonna to sing together.